welcome to Season 2 of the Thompson Rivers University Business Law Society Podcast. My name is Bowen Matheson. I'm a 3L student at TRU Law and the host for this second season. I was among the founding team of TRU Law students who started the Business Law Society in 2019, and I produced Season 1 of this podcast last school year. This podcast aims to provide students, lawyers, and the general public with insights from some of the greatest legal professionals in Canada. We hope that our conversations with rising stars, legal innovators, law professors, Queen's Counsel, and other legal professionals provide our listeners with impacting and thought-provoking entertainment. So with that said, this podcast is not legal advice. Our first guest of Season 2 of the TRU Business Law Society podcast is Lena Yousefi of Wylaw. Lena is a multi-award-winning family lawyer, accredited mediator, and the founder of Wylaw, the fastest-growing female-led law firm in Western Canada. She has been chosen as one of the top 25 most influential lawyers in Canada, one of business in Vancouver's top 40 under 40, and voted as number one top-rated Vancouver divorce lawyer in BC. She has won over 90% of her family law cases from 2013 to present, and Lena is one of the top 10 innovators in Canada, as awarded by the Globe and Mail. In 2020, Lena was named by Lexpert as the only family lawyer in Canada to become the rising star of the legal profession. In 2021, she was chosen as one of the top 75 immigrants in Canada by the Canadian Immigrant Organization. So, Lena, welcome to the Business Law Society podcast. Thank you for having me. So the first question we had for you was just to share a brief overview of your career from articling to becoming the CEO of Wylaw and anything you'd like to share about your experience in law. I think my first impression when I started articling was that uh, we were about 100 years behind um, as compared to the other um, other sectors in, in, in our society and that there was a huge pushback when it came to any kind of change and the like new, like this generation ideas uh, either didn't exist or if they did, they were kind of like, you know, pushed, pushed to the back. So, and I actually, in the middle of my articles, I changed my job because I was like, okay, this can't be it. Like, I'm going to go to another firm and, you know, they're probably going to be, you know, more and more updated with the times and, and they were better, but still there was, there were all these like super old fashioned ideas regarding like, you know, everything to do with business and, you know, being a lawyer, even being a woman, being a minority and all that. So very quickly, I think within the first um, two years, I realized I, I needed to like thrive in my own environment and I needed to create my own environment. I couldn't, I couldn't work with an environment that just did not feed my soul or it didn't feel right. So um, it, so very quickly, I went out on my own, which was a very, very, very scary um, venture. I was lucky because I, I'm, I'm Persian, so I had a niche in that community. You know, I could, um, it, it was easier for me to kind of get clients at the beginning. And, you know, thankfully I did. And, and then th- th- I think our ideas, I started attracting a lot of young talent because I wanted young people to be on, on board. And then we started kind of, you know, creating a bit of a, um, it's, it was kind of like a ball that just started rolling and and just within like a year or two, we kept on doubling our size. And now, uh, you know, there's over 14 lawyers and, you know, almost like 30 people working for Wyla, which is like double how much they were even last year. So uh, the future is bright and it's friendly, but it's exhausting too at the same time. <laughs> and the number of locations that Wyla has. We opened two actually just um, just this month. 
<laughs> and then uh, we're opening another one. So it's uh, it's very exciting times, I, I must say. And I and I hope we keep we keep on going because my ultimate goal is just to kind of like leave a legacy that you can be in the legal profession and not be mentally ill and not have addiction issues and and have an actual work-life balance to the meaning you know like you act, actually have it instead of just talk about it you know and and that uh, we can do all that and not be called lazy or you know irrational or crazy that's that's my goal so we're we're expanding pretty quickly to get there as soon as possible there's other things that I wanted to talk to. And I think we and I spoke about them last time we spoke about your four day work week, because I had worked for an employer, which had a very similar philosophy before law school and that we worked four days a week and had three days off every week. And the benefits which that brings to people's performance, to their happiness, to their job satisfaction, and to the chagrin of old law does not affect performance or outcomes. And um, yeah, what can you share with us about how Wyla has managed with four-day work weeks so far? In the last year, we doubled our size because of that concept. Because you know, there's such need in the in the legal profession for something other than having to come to work. You know, seven days a week. And and I think like as we we're kind of like maturing as we're going through it. Like at the beginning, it was like a major hit. We we still don't have any. Um, we don't really have turnovers, you know, like people haven't really taken advantage of it. Our profits have gone up, our revenues have gone up. Um, people are generally just happier and, you know, like the mental health and, you know, the, the psyche, everything is better. Our clients are even served better because we're happier. Like if you're not a happy lawyer, you're not going to have happy clients and vice versa. So um, that's all been good. But the one thing that I, that I realized is that, and, and I say this because you guys are law students and you're going to start articling and you're going to be, be, be junior lawyers. There is a balance um, and, and there's consideration that you need to apply when you're, when you're kind of like doing the four-day weeks. So, and, and what I mean by that is that, you know, like a bunch of us are senior lawyers here. We all have more than 10 years of experience. We have our families. We've worked seven days a week. We've done our litigation. We've been abused and exposed, exploited and all those things. We've been through it. We've paid our dues and now it's time to, you know, like work four day weeks. And, you know, in the legal profession, really, you say four days, but, you know, there's a lot of weeks where you have to come in five days or six days because something urgent happens. It's in the code of professional conduct that, you know, if something happens, you don't say, oh, I'm not supposed to work today. Um, you, you get to work. Where I am in my life or, you know, my colleagues, four day work weeks are more suitable for them than somebody who just came out of law school is articling, is trying to learn as much as possible, pay their dues, um, you know, expand their careers and become better. So what I did is after the first six months, I, you know, I looked at our articling and junior lawyers who already knew this, by the way. And I said, you know, it's not like mandatory that you take the day off, you know, see what you need to advance your career, but at the same time, be mentally healthy and have your work life. And what is that? If that's five days a week, then come to work five days a week. If it's six days a week, then, then do that. Like don't follow the same formula as everybody else because nobody's the same and everybody has a different life situation so four day work weeks are very like it's you know the new black trendy thing and and people tend to you know have a bunch of assumptions about them some of them is 
you know, in the legal profession is that you need, you have to be lazy to work four days a week, which is not true. And, you know, there's, there's other assumptions that, you know, if you work four days, every day is going to be, uh, every week is going to be four days. No, that's not true either. Some weeks you're going to work four days. Some days, some weeks you're going to work seven days. You know, the, the nature of being a lawyer uh, demands that you adapt to different situations. So as long as you stay flexible and have your priorities set and are working in an environment that cultivates what you need, then you're going to be successful and you don't have to be in a one size fit all situation to get there. Yeah. It sounds like if the four day work week becomes just the standard, then you're just kind of moving a goalpost of what was the original problem, which was an expectation, right? But you might cause stress by eliminating the amount of time people can work. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. The, the really, uh, you kind of nailed it because now it's becoming a choice instead of an expectation. And when you have the choice to come in or not, you just feel more autonomous. You need, you feel more free and you can play with your, you know, with, with your time and kind of like do it the way you like, which is where we're going as, as, as a working sector anyway. Like, you know, that's what the pandemic has done. Like make, and not just the lawyers, but everybody make us think that my employer is just a stepping stone or a part of my journey to find my purpose, whether it's work or career or family. This is my journey now. I'm no longer at somebody's mercy to have the security that I need to have. And I'm no longer forced to do this for the rest of my life because I need to provide. We've developed enough for um, our people to have a choice as to what they want to do. And it's that choice that makes us mentally healthy. It's when, when the choice is taken away, we start suffering because we our freedoms are out and, and we don't have a say. So what I'm trying to do by these concepts is to give people back the choice and let them choose what fits their agenda. No, it sounds very liberating, right? Yeah. We all know it's a practice, right? And it yeah. would be a little naive if a junior lawyer, articling student especially, walked in and they're like, yeah, I got the gig. I only yeah. got to be here four days a week. Yeah. And, you know, unless you're an incredibly fast learner and just yeah. you got it, yeah. you're probably not going to get that good at it, only doing it four days a week. I mean, exactly. if you're not experienced within this field and that type of thinking, it's kind of like the 10,000 hour rule, which I don't know if it's proven or not anymore, but I think you know what I mean. You yeah. got to put the time in to get good at things, exactly. right? Exactly. And in the event that you expect that you're going to just have a fruitful career and you're going to be able to do all the things by which we have known the stereotypical lawyer can do in our society, but you're not going to put the work in. You're kind of setting yourself up for a disappointment unless again, you're part of that 1%. Have your articling students and the junior lawyers reduced their workload? No, the thing is that they already know that like, you know, lawyers by nature are, are, are type A individuals. They already know that the problem is that the employer is so afraid of you know retaining lazy lawyers or lawyers or articling students not meeting their targets that they start like dictating and forcing them into you know set hours and set targets and set days right like what i've done is i'm i'm giving back the i'm trusting that they're going to be able to be responsible and make their own decisions and build their own careers and i don't have to be their mother and put them under the microscope and you know look at them clocking and clock out they don't need that um, so I'm, I'm, I'm trusting them because they should be trusted. Like once we, once we do the LSAT and do our undergrad and do our law school, and then, you know, go through the very gruesome process of, you know, applications for articling, 
we want nothing more than to, you know, start the career and, you know, make it better. And yeah, of course, there's going to be cases where you're going to get, you know, a junior or an articling student who either this isn't, this isn't right for them or they're not motivated or they may be lazy. I haven't come across any in the 11 years that I've been practicing and, and hiring people. But if I do, then we both know that this is not the right place for them. I'm not going to force people, you know, force another, you know, everybody that I've met in my life to act a certain way because there is a probability that I might come across somebody who may take advantage of this. You know, I'm just not afraid. And if it does happen, I'll deal with it. But until then, I'll just give everybody the benefit of the doubt because that works with people. Fear doesn't work anymore. There's a question on the converse side of this conversation. Is there anything in the legal profession where you're like, you know what, I think that's a pretty good staple and it should stick around? Absolutely. I, there's a lot of things that I would l- love to see continue forever, like the, the, the debate of law. The, the, the law is like wine, you know, it just matures with age. And there's so many brilliant legal minds out there, especially, you know, like the older generation, like you sit and talk to them, you know, in, in, a, in a, you know, if you're not their employee, but you sit and talk to them, you know, for lunch or coffee, like it's just the knowledge that's getting transferred, the passion for the law, the how angry we get at injustice, how much we try to be the creativity, the, the trying to make things better, either on, on a small scale, such as family law, when you're dealing, you know, with children and couples or on a large scale, when you're trying to protect animals or, you know, like be on the side of the protesters for pipelines or, or whatnot. So the passion for the law, the intelligence that these people have should be continued, the stringent tests that we have to go through to become lawyers, the reputations we need to have to become lawyers in this country. These are amazing things that need to stay. Um, you know, and I'm very proud of Canada for having these systems. Um, and hard work should continue. You know, like lawyers are, are held to a different standard and they should be because we have people's lives in our hands. So, yeah, we have to work extra hard and we have to keep on pushing ourselves. None of that should change. I think that should all stay. But the way we're treated as humans in a legal environment, in a law firm, the the way we're looked at, that that needs to change because we're we're being looked at as a billable target a lot of times. We're being looked at as liabilities if we decide to have uh, children or if we're women or we're minorities. And um, we're measured on a very one-dimensional way. And all of that, all of that needs to go out the door and needs to change. And it is, it is slowly, but surely, surely. And it's up to us. Like, you know, if you read the latest research, like a lot of the larger firms are losing talent. Like lawyers are no longer willing to do it. And, you know, you can be choosy even, even when you start articling. You no longer have to beg just to be at a big firm because, they're not retaining talent. You know, the, ta- the tables are, are, you know, getting turned. So um, as far as, as long as you guys as students push for that and show that this is no longer acceptable, we're going to make change a lot quicker. But if we keep on being afraid and being like, this is the way it's going to be, and I'm just going to put up with it, then it's going to take a lot longer. Yeah, of course, right? If there's not a consistent change for this progress, then it's not going to go anywhere, just like anything else. I mean, it's funny that you mentioned like the the poor retention rate of the big firms is like those rumors are circumventing all around even law school. There is another side of it. I don't know if you've heard much about it, but what I've heard is, of course, there are some who are just saying, I'm not going to do it. And then they're going yeah. on, like you mentioned, but there's also some that are actually just saying, 
you're just not paying me enough. I could go to the United States and I could get paid more to do yeah. the same thing. And yeah. that's kind of funny too, because they're kind of just continuing the problem, but they're yeah. just saying like, yeah, you know what though? Like if yeah. I'm going to go through this, I'd rather make triple yeah. with the current exchange rate by yeah. Canadian dollar to American. Right. Um, I just haven't seen any studies or anything substantiating that. So it's just an interesting thing by which is, um, we're hearing more of. I want to change gears to ask you some questions more so on like the business law side, because I know a lot of your clients in your family law practice are business owners. And I wanted to ask you about some of the common difficulties that occur when families are divorcing and what occurs with the family business. Is there anything you can share with us about those struggles or those kinds of challenges? That's a really good question. And, you know, it has a long answer, but, you know, at, at the very core of it, if you're a business owner, you need time and space to manage and be creative and be and and you know how 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 competitive businesses have gotten on its own. You know, like you have to constantly stay at the front of the line. And then you're going through a separation. It's almost like you know you got into an accident and you're at the hospital. So like something is forcibly taking you back and taking your attention, taking your emotional energy, everything back into a problem, and it's taken away from your focus on the business. So what happens is if you don't handle that situation in a smart way, you're going to crash and burn, which we see all the time, like people going bankrupt, businesses losing money. Sometimes business owners do it on purpose so that their wives or husbands, you know, don't, don't, don't get a benefit out of it. Um, Sometimes it happens because of depression and anxiety. They just can't handle it. But the smart business owners that I've seen are willing to say, you know what? Like maybe my wife or husband is being really unreasonable and they want everything under the sun. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to give them everything under the sun because my asset is my brain and it's what I can do with my business. So in a, in a lot of situations, like the smart ones are willing to let go of, you know, the real, re, real estate or the savings, you know, like not all of it, but in a lot of situations, most of it, as long as they get left alone with their business, those are the clients that I that I appreciate because they have long term sights on on you know what's going to work and what's positive. Instead of I'm just going to be fighting with this person over you know what we've what, what we've accumulated to this point. The difference between a good businessman or woman and a bad businessman or woman to me is the way they handle their divorce, because that tells me how smart they are. And then, you know, there are family businesses, though those are more messy when, you know, the husband and wife and the children all worked in the same business and now they're divorcing and they have to see each other every day. Uh, and, you know, how to divide that? Like, do you let them, do you let the wife or husband keep half the shares? And then if they do, what happens when, when it comes to making business decisions and things like that? It, it, can, it can get quite messy, but the most sophisticated and bigger the businesses get, um, the, the, the tends to be the, the better the businessman or woman acts during the divorce because they know they, they have a lot to lose. So they smarten up. There was a, a small quip that came to mind when you were mentioning about how the, the better business people are those who handled their divorce with a more forward thinking yes. sort of perspective. And it's kind of funny, just the way you phrased it was like, almost like, like when they get divorced, it's like an inevitability kind of, I was like, well, I mean, you're probably not wrong, but um, there was one that came to mind. I don't know if you work with many clients that are, are farm owners, but I learned about this in unjust enrichment cases last semester in uh, the example of the farm wife or the farm mother and that in the divorce, effectively, they, they keep the business because it's the farm, it's the livelihood. But through the divorce, the wife often gets completely 
thrown under the bus as a result of it because like the business is what she's been attending to at home you know she's just been taking care of things and managing the house she mm -hmm. hasn't actually been on the farm per se but she's been enabling the husband to go out and do all of that and what some unjust enrichment cases will do is they will make a constructive trust yeah. for the wife to have going forward so yeah. that's kind of her share yeah. in the farm right yeah. and um our professor that taught us the course, uh, Chris Hunt, he was just turned inside out about it because the idea of unjust enrichment is about returning people to their original state. Yeah. And it's not supposed to be forward. Yeah, forward. yeah, yeah. But the constructive trust sentiment of yeah. the farm wife circumstance and unjust enrichment, Canada has basically said, yeah. no, it's about going forward. Yeah. Like, have you ever dealt with anything like that in any case? No, that's the first time I'm hearing that. And it's a very, very interesting legal problem. I think the intention is right. I think the wording they're using is wrong. Like you could come up with some other blank trust, you know, on, on, a, on a forward thinking. But yeah, unjust enrichment is definitely about somebody having lost something in the past and putting, you know, preserving, you know, bringing them back to where they were. So I think the term used um, is, is, is wrong. But, you know, to, to give the wife a, a half interest in the income and the asset of the business makes a lot of sense to me. I think what, what I've seen, which is a bit more um, tragic, it's not the money that, you know, the loss of money necessarily is the loss of connection between this couple and all the animals that, that they have on the farm. I've seen a lot of custody battles, like, oh, like if one of them is ousted out of the farm, like, you know, they, they, sometimes they fight over the animals. They want to take some of the animals because they have such incredible connection to them. You know, like it becomes, it becomes pretty messy. And then the situation becomes, okay, do we treat these animals as property or are they, or should they be treated as people where you, where you, where you look at what their best interest is, you know, who, who would they be, who's a better suited parent for them. Right. So then, then the whole, there's been a big push, especially when it comes to pets uh, in family law to treat them, you know, as you would treat people, like what's in their best interest versus property, because, you know, again, the property side is like, okay, who bought it? And, you know, the, the, the pet goes to them, but, and it really ignores the emotional connection and size and, you know, like the, ha the happiness of that animal. It's, a, it's an interesting concept altogether when animals are involved. I'm certain that animal rights activists are very, very aware of this, but yeah, myself and to imagine that it's, it sounds like a very reasonable thing, the idea yeah. of custody over animals i mean uh but it's the first time hearing about it and and honestly as somebody who's grown up with dogs my whole life i do consider them to be family you know yeah. in a sense of course i know they're not human beings but to know the sentiment and the connection by which they have had in my life and in my immediate family and to have faced the losses of sometimes timely sometimes tragic deaths of yeah. some of my pets in the past mm -hmm. to understand that consideration in family law and especially in farm owning couples that have a lot of animals right mm -hmm. in terms of horses or cattle maybe or sheep yeah. or whatever or yeah. might be any other variety but yeah I'm, I'm also of the of the mind that it's 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 a tr it's a challenging reality because yeah. they're property but they're not but they're not yeah yeah I mean so Thank you for giving me that perspective on things. I just I had one more question yeah. because it's been something that's been kind of bothering me a little bit for a little while now. Um, yes. And I just double checked. Ever since we first spoke, the Y Law website has listed a corporate law section. 
Yeah. <laughs> is it under construction? <laughs> yeah. Content coming soon. And a part of and I know several law students who know about you, but they're, they are, they want to be solicitors. They want to yeah. do corporate commercial business yeah. law stuff. And they look at family law and they just start, you know, getting the cold sweat. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and maybe I'm explaining myself, but nonetheless, are, is why law planning to open up some level of a corporate branch at any time? Or what do you have in mind with that? Yeah, we definitely are. So like we're, we're in the process of something called, I don't know if you're familiar, it's called like scaling. We're um, rapidly expanding and um, and we want to add more departments. We don't want to just do family law. You know, it can be exhausting at times and, you know, we need, uh, we, we want to explore other areas. So uh, basically like we formed a leadership team where, you know, we're going to go and curate, you know, the talented people to kind of like, you know, add, add these departments. And I actually think, this is not strictly, and this this might be a good thing for you know the students to know, and you may already know this, but the the market for like psychedelics, you know, Bitcoin, blockchain, like these are becoming legal concepts that nobody before you has done. So when you're coming out of law school, you're just as quote senior as the as the as the next person, you know, even forty percent before you. So. I would love to kind of like get into that because I, I think, you know, psychedelics are going to be, you know, legal, but, you know, like the crypto might become, you know, more legitimate, you know, like there was a huge wave that even happened with uh, cannabis, you know, a couple years ago where a lot of like articling students started just specializing in cannabis and all of a sudden, like they have the entire country after them because it's so, you know, it's such a niche. So I, you know, th- that's what I want to get into uh, with Wyla. I'm not really... I'm not, you know, too big into, again, old concepts of freaking like mergers and acquisitions, which, you know, still happen. But what about startups? What about new things that are getting introduced to the market? And how can we how can we stay at the front of it? And, you know, even sometimes, you know, like help the regulators and the government come up with the laws that are going to be fair. And, you know, how can we how can we make a meaningful impact that way? So that's definitely the next step for us that we want to at uh, departments and you know if uh, I, I i love the brilliant minds who can bring something to the plate so yeah that that section is under construction i'm gonna we're gonna work on it i promise you it's just that we have so many things on the go but yeah definitely definitely something to consider thanks for the reminder <laughs> <laughs> no perfect i mean i should have expected nothing less than to have a type of corporate commercial law practice which is replicating or mirroring the same sort of ideas that you are implementing throughout the rest of the practice and that's that's really inspiring to hear that you are mindful of those things you see the writing on the wall and uh you're not just looking to open up something where you're going to do in corporations or the simple stuff on just a general level you want to be attracting people who are not only legal professionals that are interested in forward-looking areas that just haven't existed um but also the idea of attracting clients that are going to see you see what the firm is about and recognize of course, I could go to the big law firm and they have so much experience with this and they'll help me once my business is a business, but who's going to help me get to be a legitimate yeah. business? Yeah. Who can I count on? And to view the entire past of why law, I'd see that business and be like, she knows what she's doing. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> I feel great talking to you. <laughs> well, I, I, I'm trying not to be too overzealous here with my yeah. compliments, but it's <laughs> true. And so nonetheless... I really want to thank you for your time and all of your thoughtful answers to our questions. And yeah, I really look forward to the next time we have a chance to speak. Thank you so much, Bo. Thank you for listening. 
For those interested in learning more about Lena or YLAW, you can find out more at www.ylaw.ca. If you're interested in learning more about the TRU Business Law Society, you can check out our website at www.trubls.com. See you in the next episode.